0: Well, today is Father's Day. Dads aren't quite like moms, in, in case that's radical to some of you. Uh, dads don't need a ton of fanfare, a ton of celebration, a ton of compliments, trying to buy a gift for your dad for his birthday. is just like, I don't need anything. You know, whatever, it's fine. Don't, you know, don't spend the money. It's my money anyway. You know, you've heard all those things, right? Yeah. So it's just give me the 20 bucks. I'd rather have that, you know. But it's still important for us to acknowledge and honor our fathers, especially today. Dads just need it every once in a while, right? I'm always teaching my kids, you compliment your mother every single day of your life, every chance you get. Dads, you do that every day, they're like, what is this? But every once in a while, so it's good. Especially because you know as well as I do that fatherhood is not exactly an exalted category these days, is it? There have been times in history where dad is everything. I'm not even so much talking about our culture, just around the world, but now... Man, you can't even watch football without all the commercials sitting there trying to tell you how stupid you are. Dad can't figure it out, and dad's a loser, or dad's a bum, and, you know, I don't really care so much what's on TV, but it's still obnoxious, right? It's still kind of tough to live with. And not only that, you all know, and we're going to share some, some stats and some things in a second here, but... There's a crisis of fatherhood in our country. So not only are we not honoring our fathers, but there is an epidemic of dads not stepping up to live the, the job that they're supposed to. The thing is, though, and I don't know if this makes us feel better or worse, but even in the Bible, it's hard to find an example of a great man who was also a good father. You look through the Bible, trying to pick a, a study for Father's Day, and I don't want to you know, say, here's the bad example of this guy, now don't be like him. I want to have something positive and good, but like, I can't do Jacob, because Jacob was a rotten father. <laughs> he had a lot of kids, he was prolific, but he wasn't any good at it, right? Moses was not a good father. Did you know that a, a generation or two in the Promised Land, Moses' son was a priest of a false god? They were using Moses' kid to promote their idolatry. Samuel, you know the story of Samuel? When he gets old, they said, look, Samuel, you're old and you got two sons and they're not like you. That's why we need a king. Because I don't want your sons to be our prophets anymore. David was great at a lot of things. Being a dad was not one of them. You run through the Bible, it's, it's like ridiculous how hard it is to find that. So it's been a problem for all of history, not just now. It's always been tough to be a dad. But... The Bible teaches us that fatherhood is an honorable position. It's an honorable task. And there are two complete opposite categories of people that want to tell you that being a dad is either a waste of time or useless. You've got a bunch of deadbeat men I say, fatherhood is just a way for women to control men, and they're going to try and tell us how to live, and I'm going to live my own life and be my own person. Meanwhile, over here, you've got the radical feminist who's saying things like, men are toxic, and they shouldn't be around our kids, and unless they can act like women, we don't need them around. The most opposite people in the whole world, and yet they're somehow arrived at the same disdain for fatherhood. But I don't really care what either category says. What does the Bible say? Psalm 127, verses 4 and 5 says this. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver. Blessed is the father that says. You will not be ashamed. He says, if you're going to live your life and be a good father, you're not going to have to be ashamed of anybody. Speaking with your enemies in the gate, it's like, I don't care what you have to say because I've got my quiver full of arrows back home. Everything is fine. The Lord exalts and honors fatherhood. It's not an obstacle to your self-fulfillment, as some people have seemed to think. I want to be famous. I want to be rich. I want to be popular. I want to be powerful. And these kids just getting in the way. Nor is it an unnecessary position that can be replaced easily. we don't really need dads. I mean, as long as the kid is being fed and going to school, who really cares, right? But in reality, being a father is the most significance a man can have in his life. You can accomplish all kinds of things, but the most direct impact on the world you're going to have is the kids that you raise, dad. And you know what? Believe it or not. The studies have shown and are continuing to show as they're studied that the loss of a father has an even stronger effect on a child than the loss of their mother. Would you believe that? That's what's starting to be shown because we've tried the experiment, haven't we, for a long time. Well, it's just... We don't really need the dads. Let's get rid of them. Let's, we, we, the kids will be fine. Turns out, no, they're not. As of right now, and you can put this up there, in America, there are 19.7 million children living without their father at home, 20 million kids who don't have dads at home. And I'm going to read these stats, and these are not just to depress you. These are to encourage you also as a father, because as a dad, you start to think, how am I going to protect my kid from all this big, long list of garbage that is out there trying to get them. But in reality, what statistics show us, and we'll get to the word in a minute, that's more significant than stats, but what statistics show us just by being there, dad, even if you're not a good dad, is the best thing you can do for your child. Let me read some of these. Students with fathers at home score higher in math and science, even in weaker schools. Means a kid in a great school, Without his dad, will do worse than a kid in a rotten school with his dad. And that's something. Father involvement is 5 times more effective in preventing drug use than the rules a parent sets, the relationship a child has with his parents, the strictness of the family, or a child's gender, ethnicity, or social class. It means if you want to keep a kid off drugs, dad is the solution. By first grade, boys and girls raised in families with fathers present had significantly higher IQ scores than kids whose fathers were absent. Not fathers who were great and good and played baseball with them on weekends, who were there. By the third grade, boys with fathers present scored higher on every achievement test and received higher grades. Father absence is the most likely predictor of being both a bully and being bullied in school. Adolescents with minimal or no father involvement account for 71% of high school dropouts. What's the solution to the dropout rate? Daddy. Here's one that I know the dads will love because we catch a lot of flack for this one. Roughhousing by a dad with his kids reduces aggression in both male and female children. Stop wrestling with them. You're going to make them want to hit people. Have you heard that one, right? You try and punch the kid, then the kid's going to want to punch people. The opposite of that is true. You see an aggressive kid that's out there bullying people? The stats tell us that that kid was never roughhoused with growing up. So, mama, he's doing a good thing for your kid. (laughs) 90% of homeless and runaway youths are from fatherless homes. 90%. You want to solve the problem of homelessness? Daddy. Dad deprivation? Increases the likelihood of teenage motherhood, both for causing teenage motherhood and being a teenage motherhood, by seven times. You are seven times more likely to have a child, either as a man or a woman, as a teen, if dad is not there. Fatherless children are more than 2.5 times as likely to struggle with substance abuse. Absence of dad contributes to violent crime as much or more than absence of income. People want to say poverty is what causes crime. According to the stats that we have, not having a dad in the home contributes to crime just as much. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, or middle class. Children without fathers are twice as likely to suffer obesity. Here's one. A 1% increase in fatherlessness in a community. So every time the stat of fatherlessness goes up by 1%, that predicts a 3% increase in youth violence. So the stat triples when it comes to violence when dad's not there. Among youths in prison, 85% grew up in a fatherless home. You want to stop incarceration? You want to stop youth violence? Dad is the solution. Check this one out. Children who were born poor and raised by both married parents had an 80% chance of moving to the middle class or above. 80% chance. If you were born with nothing and you have mom and dad in the home, you have a four out of five chance to move into the middle class or the upper class later. Children, though, who were born in the middle class and raised without a married father were four times as likely to drop into the poverty level. And fatherlessness has a greater correlation with suicide among teens than any other factor. The most common factor among teens who committed suicide is that dad was not there. So dad, you're kind of a superhero. and, And you know what's great about that? It's not about being a great dad and spending quality time with your kids so much. Those things are important. It's not even about having proper disciplinary measures and understanding all the latest techniques. Just by being there. And these stats also apply to any sort of significant father figure in the home. What does this tell us? It tells us that men in particular and dads specifically are important. We need them for our families. And we know this. The Bible told us this. I remember seeing the headline in a news magazine, tabloid magazine, that I did not pick up and read. I just, you're in the supermarket and it's right there. I know some actress smiling on the front cover and she said, the big headline, I don't need a man to be a mother. Okay. <laughs> all right. There's there a couple things wrong with that, but here's the main point I want to make. You're right. You as a woman, you don't need a man to complete you to be a mother. But you cannot be a father to that child, Miss whatever your name is. We need dads. We in the church need to be exalting and pumping up and supporting the fathers in our midst. And there there have been situations where it's been broken, there's been divorce, there's been abuse, there's been whatever. The gospel comes in and wants to heal all that. There is redemption, but we need to know what the standard is, right? God created Adam and Eve and said raise children together. He knew what he was doing, didn't he? No other animal has fatherhood. Do you know that? he wants to compare us to the animals all the time as if that makes a difference. But no other animal has fatherhood. No other animal has dads that stick around for life and raise their children. When God created people in his own image, fatherhood was there. That's special. That matters. God himself has revealed himself to us as a father. We call him Father God. And there's a lot of weird people that want to say, well, the Bible also reveals God as a mother. No, it does not. Anytime somebody says something that sounds really weird to you, it's probably really weird. He's the one who originates us. He provides for us. He protects us. He disciplines us. He instructs us. And he leads us. And a man who leads his family well is a rare thing, fellas. That's why we in the church need to be cultivating masculine leadership. Because we can look at the world and say, oh, how are we going to change that? The Lord has told us, don't worry about that. What about what's right in front of you? Raising your families well. Being men for each other. Showing our young boys that are over there. We've got several of them. What it means to be a godly man together as a church. It's important. It matters. And that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to look at the life and the legacy of a man in the Bible who got it right. There is one of them in there. He got it right. And it set the tone, not just for his direct children, but for his whole tribe. That's why the title today is clan leader. There's something about that that makes a guy go, yeah, I'm not just dad here, but... I'm the leader of this clan. I'm the patriarch of this family. And that's who Caleb was. He was more than a father. His influence on his children went beyond just his direct descendants, but to all of his family that extended beyond that. And through him, we learn what a biblical father figure looks like. And it's also a very macho story that works for Father's Day. On Mother's Day, we're going to talk about sweet things. On Father's Day, though, we're going to talk about Caleb. So... I'm going to read certain passages, but I'm going to have to explain a lot of it because this is covering a lot of, of Bible here. This is Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And we first meet him in Numbers 13, 6, where he's the representative from the tribe of Judah that is chosen to spy out the promised land. You know this story, right? They're going to the promised land. They've left Egypt They've been to Mount Sinai. They had that whole golden calf episode. But now they've got the law. They've got the tabernacle. They're moving on. They come to the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they're about to go in. And Moses says, okay, let's get one man from each tribe. Go out into the promised land and do a little recon. Find out what it's like. Find out if it's a good land. Find out what their strategies are. Find out what their defenses are like. What's the character of the people? And so they go into Canaan. Caleb is 40 years old at this point and he and Joshua are going to hit it off pretty well. Joshua was the spy from the tribe of Ephraim and you know his story from beyond this, of course. And they seem to be kindred spirits and they're going to end up being buddies for a very long time. But let's read starting in Numbers 13 verse 25 and then we'll go down to chapter 14 verse 10. So the spies are in the land and they come back at the end of 40 days. They returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Anakim are similar to the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6. These are giants like Goliath. These are half demon monsters that look like men. And it's like, uh, and they live here. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb. Quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes And said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. I love that. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So, ten spies bring back a bad report. Yeah, it's a great land, but there's no way we're winning this fight. But Caleb and Joshua said, the Lord will be with us. Let's go up right now. They're bread for us. We're going to eat them for breakfast, guys. They can't stand against us. Caleb is ready to go and fight some giants. So is Joshua. And the people are ready to go back to Egypt. And they're set to kill Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. And it says the glory of the Lord, that pillar of cloud, stood before the people. Had to get serious. And the Lord almost, actually is going to offer to Moses, Moses, do you want me to kill all these people and start over with you? But we're not going to get into that today. He didn't. But because of that rebellion, When the children of Israel refused to go into the promised land, the Lord swore that the children of Israel are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Why 40 years? He says, I want everybody who was 20 years or older who refused to go in that promised land to die off. Except for two people. Do you have any guess who those two were? Caleb and Joshua. That's pretty, pretty intense, isn't it? The Lord's like, fine. Go walk around for 40 years until all of you have died. And then I'll do it with your kids. And we'll keep Caleb and Joshua around. He said that in verse 30 of this chapter, that Caleb and Joshua would be permitted to see the conquest of the promised land. So for 40 years, they waited, watching everybody else of their peer group die off. And you all know that Joshua became the leader of Israel after Moses. He's got a whole book named after him, the book of Joshua. And he led the children of Israel into the promised land. let's talk about Caleb. Caleb, aside from Joshua, is the oldest man in Israel. So the youngest person that the Lord left alive would have been 20 years old. Add 40 years to that, 60. Caleb is 80 years old now. And he's not doddering around, I promise you. We're going to get to this in a second. We're not going to see Caleb's name again until the land is being divided between the tribes. So In Joshua 15 and in Judges chapter 1, we know that it was the tribe of Judah that led the children of Israel in the conquest. And it was Caleb who would have been the tribal leader of Judah at this point because he's the oldest one in the tribe of Judah right now. He is the one leading. So when God finally does send them into the promised land, Joshua is in charge of the strategy and the overall planning. But Caleb is the one on the front line actually fighting So the Lord's like, don't worry, Caleb, I'm going to give you a chance to kill some giants. And we see that he actually did that. And turn with me now to Joshua chapter 14. I love this story. When I think about what I want to be when I'm an old man, this is the story that I think of right here. Joshua 14, starting at verse 6. This is after the conquest is finished. So they've finally driven out the people from the promised land. And in verse 6, The people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, there he is again, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. We just read that story. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years. So he's 85 years old now. Since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness... And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. And my strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. So Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim and the land had rest from war. (laughs) 85 year old Caleb. 40 years old when he spied out the land, then 40 years in the wilderness, then five years of conquest. Now you've come to the end of the conquest, and they're divvying up the land, and it comes Caleb's turn. Now, Joshua's probably thinking, Caleb is a, is a seasoned old saint. He's come to the end of his run. Why don't we find a nice little retirement community for Caleb? Find him a nice little oasis. Everything's nice. You know, he, he won't have to get up and move so much because, you know, he's... He's an old man now and and we should be kind to him and give him the the best parts of the land, the safest part. And Caleb hears about it. And Caleb shows up to Joshua. He shows up and this is a man of war, you guys, who just led the children of Israel. And he says, hey, God told me I could have the mountains where the giants are. I want the mountains. You want the mountains. Mountains are not the best place for a family to grow up. It's not like you're going to have the best trade. You're not going to have the best fertile ground. He goes, yeah, but the giants are there. And God promised me I could kill those giants. Are you sure, Caleb? You're 85 years old. I'm as strong today as I was then. Send me up there. Maybe God will be with me. How cool is that? And it says he, he turned Kiriath Arba into Hebron. Arba was the greatest of the Anakim, so like the worst, nastiest, ugliest giant is sitting up there in those mountains, and Caleb says, I want to be the one to kill him. I was the only one that was ready to go and fight them giants. And now you're gonna tell me that I'm too old? I don't think so. I've waited 45 years for this. You send me up there. And he did, and they did. They killed all the giants. He was the toughest old man you've ever met in your life. He refused to settle down, he refused to back down from a challenge, and Caleb was the beginning of the prominence of the tribe of Judah in Scripture. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So did David. But we don't see Judah stepping up into prominence until Caleb. Caleb set the tone for the tribe of Judah. Now, in the story of the conquest, I want to keep going here because there's another man in Caleb's line. Caleb was great, but what's the problem we talked about? You get great men that are rotten fathers. Caleb was not a rotten father. There's a fellow by the name of Othniel in the Bible who's going to carry on Caleb's legacy. Judges chapter 1, will you read with me? Starting in verse 11. This is describing uh, those five years when they were conquering the whole promised land. So it's, it's a little overlap of earlier, but let's read the story. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said... He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Okay, so while they're conquering the land, they come to this big, tough city. And in order to add a little bit of motivation, Caleb says, whoever takes over Kiryat Sefer gets to marry my daughter. And we, of course, hear that. That's so oppressive. It's like, oh, well, not really. Aksa's getting the pick of the litter here. <laughs> whoever is able to lead the people in conquering this city is who she gets to marry. And this dude hears that and says, all right, let's do this. And it says he was the son of his younger brother. So nephew, but this is probably a more distant nephew here. And the Lord had very strict laws about incest, so just get over that as we move forward, okay? But Othniel, Caleb's distant nephew, captures this city, wins the hand of Caleb's daughter in marriage. So he's a lot like his uncle Caleb (laughs) because he's a tough dude. And when he sees the challenge set up, he goes for it. And it says that they were to settle in the Negev. This is a desert, which is why she comes to him and asks for water says, listen, you've given us the desert land to live in. Could you also give us some springs of water that aren't maybe directly adjacent to where we live because we're going to need water? And he gives it to her. Do you see how this family is just tough as nails? Read through this a second. They're not taking the easy road. Aksa doesn't come to her father and say, you're making me live in the desert. That's so unfair. He says, no, we'll live in the desert. Just, we can get some water, though, right? Like, that's Okay. <laughs> if we have water. Looks like Othniel was willing just to go, and his wife was sensible enough to say, we need water if we're going to live in the desert, darling. (laughs) They don't take the easy road. This family never takes the easy road. They live in the desert. Why would you not want to live in the desert? Not only is it harsh living, but if there's going to be an invading army, they're going to come up that way. So Caleb says, Othniel, why don't you live down there? You're tough enough to fight off those guys. Now, when Israel was first settled after Joshua, there was no centralized authority. And it led to what we call the time of the judges, which was not a great time for Israel. But Caleb's family shone during the time of the judges. Flip over a couple more chapters to Judges 3, verses 7 through 11. We're going to see Othniel again. So this is after Joshua's dead, after Caleb presumably is dead. They're living in the land, but it says in verse 7 that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim. First try. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. So Othniel and his family are living in the desert. They become hardened warriors. It's kind of their heritage. And when the children of Israel goes astray and follows these false gods, Caleb's clan is not following those false gods because Othniel is seeing to it. Until finally, after eight years of oppression, they need help. So the Lord raises Othniel up to not only drive these people out, but Othniel led Israel for 40 years. So not only did Joshua lead the people, Caleb's next in line, so to speak, was the first leader of Israel in the Promised Land. They were probably separated from the rest of Israel and living in that desert country. Why would you want to live there? Well, they're not falling into idolatry out there. They're staying tough. They're able to fight back even the king of Mesopotamia. So not only was Caleb faithful and brave, do you see? He taught his clan to be faithful and brave. His family learned that from him so that when the day needed to be saved, who are we going to call? We're going to call Caleb's family, of course. We're going to call Othniel. We're going to call Aksa and her children. Caleb was everything that a man and a father would want to be. He was righteous. He was brave. He was tough. And he raised a family after him that maintained his legacy. Isn't that the goal? Not just to be a good man, but to raise good men and women after you. That's the hardest part. It's one thing to take care of yourself and do the right thing. But passing on what you know to another generation is much harder. But it's not a responsibility that we get to duck. Well, they're their own people. They're going to do their own thing. You're their father. But I don't think any of us want to avoid that responsibility. Sometimes we just say that when it proves tough and we feel like we're failing. But the Lord says in Proverbs 22, 6, you all know this one, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Solomon is saying, look, do a good job with your kids. Do the best you can. Be a good father as best as you know how. And God's going to take care of the rest. God helps us. And I exhort you as a father to recommit yourself to raising up a godly heritage. Grandfather, same thing for you guys. It's still your clan. We have this weird thing today where we want to draw these really tight lines between the families and say, ah, don't touch, don't say anything. We're all together. We're all the same family, the same clan, the same community, if you want to use that word. We've got to work together. So I'm going to draw some practical points out of this. That's the story. I just like telling the story of Caleb. Because it's a a really manly story. He's 85 years old. I want to go kill some giants. (laughs) I've waited 45 years for this, right? And then he has a a daughter named Aksa who is apparently so beautiful or so wonderful that men are climbing over each other to fight to take over a city. And Othniel becomes that man. They go and they live in the desert. And then when it's time for the people of Israel to need a deliverer, there they are. They're ready to go. So what can we learn from this that applies to our lives? What are some things we can pull out of this? Well, I'm going to give you five characteristics of a good clan leader. If you want to raise a family like Caleb, not just your children, but the children that come after them, the ones that are going to marry into your family. If you want to be a good, godly father like Caleb, I got five things. Five things, all right? Number one, we're going to go through these pretty quickly. The First characteristic of a father like Caleb is that he is godly. Number one thing, he believes in the Lord. He serves him above all else. We read that phrase many times in there. I have wholly served the Lord with everything I've got. And not only that, but a godly man teaches his family to do the same. Remember in Numbers 14, 9, what he said? He said, their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. He did not base his confidence on how strong he was or how strong his tribe was, or how strong Israel was, he said, yeah, they are stronger than us, but God's with us. That's what made him so confident. A good father doesn't just provide for his family, bringing the checks home every couple weeks. He doesn't just do nice things for the kids, but he sets an example of righteousness and piety, not just being a good man, but showing people this is how we worship the Lord. Somewhere along the line, we categorize religion as a female thing. It's not good. It's not biblical. I mean, you, this even goes back centuries. You can, it's funny, you read some of these old theologians and pastors and you read their books and they're sitting there complaining about how the church is full of women and the men are just staying home. I'm like, well, that's kind of the same problem we're dealing with right now. When did that happen? I don't know. I'm not a historian, but I know that we've got to get it right. Men, you got to be the leaders, the spiritual leader in your home. You're to be Christians first. If you want to be a great father, you've got to be a great Christian. How do you do this? Here's a couple practical things. Prioritize the fellowship of the church as the primary community. And I don't just mean this place, although that is definitely part of it. As a family, what is your group? What is your set that you identify with? If you're a believer, your first loyalty should be to God's people, to the church, to the community of the believers, the faith. That's what we're committed to. Because if you try and find your identity somewhere else, the church is going to become less and less significant, and your kids are going to start to wonder, why do we even bother going to church in the first place? That's the first thing. Holding up the Word as the standard of faith. We don't question what the Word tells us, unless we're questioning it to understand. We've talked about that. The difference between asking questions to understand and asking questions just to be belligerent and get your own way. We insist on the Word of God. You tell your kids, because the Bible says so. Why? I don't have to give you anything beyond that. That's God's word. Well, we, we can't do that. Yeah, we need to get that back. Insisting as a man, as a father, as a leader of your home, if God said it, we do it and we're not having this conversation. And insisting upon Christian righteousness. A lot of fathers in the church, for some reason, when their kids reach a certain age, they decide they don't want to enforce righteousness any longer. And it's usually right at the age when you need to be enforcing it the most. I've known so many people so afraid to force religion down their kids' throats. And then we send them off to a school where somebody is more than willing to shove their religion down your kids' throat. But it's not about being harsh. It's about insisting, no, this is how we live. We don't lie. We belong to God, and God is true, and we don't lie. We are not violent with one another because the Lord has been gentle with us, and you should be gentle with one another. You can tell your kids all the right things. Tell your young son, respect women. Why? I don't know. It's a good thing to do. Because the Lord told you to do that. Because God created Eve from Adam's side and he was there to be her protector. You teach these things to your children. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. That's that verse right there. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You want to be a good man? Fear God and keep his commandments. Devotion to God comes first. Devotion to God actually makes you a better father. You know that, right? It makes you a better husband. It makes you a better friend. Because everything is filtered through the Lord. And you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for him. People will disappoint you. But the Lord is eternal. A good Christian father, a good clan leader is godly. Number two, second characteristic of a father like Caleb. He is brave. He is not afraid to do what needs to be done in order to lead his family or stand on the truth. Caleb allowed the faith in God to make him brave. He was ready to charge into the promised land, not only at age 40, but also at age 80 and also at age 85. Numbers 14, 9. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. I love that. They're bread for us. We're going to eat those giants alive. He was a brave man. A good father does not make decisions from a place of fear. He does not let himself fear the circumstances around him. When everything's falling apart, when the job situation isn't working out, when relationships are crumbling, when stuff in the news is frightening. We don't let those things intimidate us as Christian men and Christian fathers, or the people around us. There are people that, for whatever reason, they get their kicks out of making you afraid of them. Maybe you have a neighbor who does that to you. Maybe you've got a boss or a coworker, or just somebody that you just run into all over the place. You don't know where they're from. Maybe when this church grows, there will be such a person here. I imagine we would deal with it. But we don't let people intimidate us. The the father is the vanguard. He's right out there in the front for his family. He's not a cog in somebody else's machine. Well, I just kind of do what they say. No, you're leading your family. This is our clan. This is our tribe. It's too easy for men, for dads, to want to take the path of least resistance. I'll just shut up and keep the peace. That's not being smart. That's not being wise. That's being cowardly, guys. Step up and do what ought to be done, whether that's at work, whether that's at home, whether that's in the church. When people want to bring weird stuff in the church, say, no, I know God, and I know what God's word has said. We're not doing that. A good father answers only to God. It means standing up to bullies in your life. Bullies are not just children. Hey, what's up, nerd, and smacking your lunch tray and shoving you in a locker. They get much more subtle as they get older. A lot of passive aggression. I mean, I'm want to give you one practical tip that has helped me. When you're at work or you're out somewhere or you've got a friend or a family member even, and they're trying to manipulate you through some sort of passive aggressive stuff, call it out right away. What are you doing? What is this? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. Yeah, you are. What is this? Because people are like that. When you call them out, they, they shrivel up. They're like, you know, when you put salt on slugs or snails, they just kind of shrivel right up. But it takes bravery and courage to do that. I'm not playing this game with you. Well, maybe you're not the kind of person we should have at this company. Are you going to fire me or not? What is that? I've, I've done that before. I've seen it done before. And every time I back down to somebody like that, I've walked away kicking myself. Amen? Why did I let that guy push me around? We're brave men. We insist on what is true at all times. Men in the church, we should have an obsession with the truth. We don't lie. We do not permit lies to happen. We don't permit ourselves to deceive ourselves and walk around as if something that we know is not true is true. And we're prepared to act on behalf of our family. We don't just say, well, just tuck your head into your turtle shell and just keep on going. No, we're going to get up and we're going to handle it. We're going to deal with it as Christian fathers. Psalm 5611 says, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Don't you love that? What can man do to me? Well, what if I lose my job? The Lord will provide for you. He always provides. Well, we might have, to, might have to change something. That's okay. Your family will honor you for being brave rather than just putting up with that same stuff in order to maintain whatever you're trying to maintain. It's one thing to know what's true. It's another thing to stand up for what's true. That's godly bravery. If you believe this word, if you believe in God, stand up for it. Insist on it. Stand on it. And don't let somebody tell you, well, these are the parameters of the conversation. You don't do that to me. I serve the Lord. The third characteristic of a father like Caleb is that he's patient. He's willing to wait for the Lord's timing with contentment and with peace. Caleb waited 40 Years to enter the promised land. Gentlemen, ladies, have you waited 40 years for anything? (laughs) Is there anything you'd be willing to wait 40 years for? Everybody's leaning over and saying, I'd wait for you, baby, for 40 years. And then he had to wait five more to take the hill country that he was supposed to go and take hold of. But he didn't complain. Everybody else was complaining. He shows up in Joshua 14.11. says, I'm as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. But he's saying, I'm as ready to go now as I was back then. Time has not dulled my zeal. Time has not dulled my strength. I have kept myself ready for this, and I've been patient, and I'm ready to go. A good father's willing to wait. Impulsive is not a category that a father should fall into. Why? Well, I really just want to grow up and be an impulsive man. It's not really what we think about, is it? We don't look at the heroes of the the world and those attributes that you hang on the wall. Nobody has those little posters with like a cat or a whale like jumping over the moon and, and it says impulsivity. Nobody does that. We want to be deliberate and decisive and patient. We're not so desperate to make things happen that we go too far. Actually, what happened when the children of Israel were told, you can't go into the promised land, they say, oh, sorry, we'll go after all. And God says, don't you do it. No, we're going. And they marched into the promised land, and they got defeated badly. and Many people died. Moses said, I told you not to go. You blew your chance. And Caleb knew that. I'm not going. I want to go. But the Lord said no, so I'm willing to wait. Dads were like, okay, how can we make this better? You sit there, and you're just kind of, you were just sitting, and stare at your yard, Dad? They're just kind of standing there. You're like, what what, what can we do here? I don't like this over here. Or you're sitting in the house, you're looking at stuff, or you're eating dinner and all of a sudden his eyes go up, ladies, and he's staring at something that he wants to fix all of a sudden. We want to improve things. It's good. And when we don't have the power to do it, when we're in a situation or something that we can't fix right away, we can get bitter. We can get crabby. I'm not mad at you, but I'm mad, and I can't be mad at that, so I'm going to be mad at you. We can even start to look for a way out. Well, then forget it. If this isn't going to work, then I'm out of here. A Christian's joy is not found in his circumstances. A Christian's joy is found in Christ. What does this mean practically? Don't complain, fathers. We're not supposed to complain anyway as Christians. But especially don't complain in front of your children and your wife and sit there making them feel like things aren't all right because of something that has nothing to do with Jesus. Consistent worship. Consistent generosity to the Lord. Because you're acknowledging that God's timing is better. God is worth waiting for. And when hardships come in, we don't let them rock our whole world. It might be tough, it might be difficult, but we bring them to the Lord and we keep going. We don't say, ah, forget it, then I quit. I'm not sticking around waiting for this anymore. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. There's something, I'll hang that on the wall, immovable. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Lord doesn't look at you working hard and striving for things, especially godly things, and say, you're never going to get it. God goes, I know when would be the best time. We don't need things to happen right now because God's timing is perfect and we're playing the long game. And when you get to heaven, you are going to have all the literal time in the world to do what God has called you to do. The fourth characteristic of a father like Caleb, he is determined. Caleb was a determined individual, I'd say. He would not settle for less than everything God had promised to him. Joshua, like I said, maybe he was trying to give him a nice little beach resort on the Mediterranean where he could live out his golden years. He goes, no, I want the mountains." says, you're going to send me to those mountains, I'm going to drive out the Anakim, or I'm going to die trying. Because this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. That's determination. A good father does not let what we just talked about, patience, be a mask for being cowardly or lazy. Sometimes there are things that God wants us to have or wants us to do, and we say, well, I'm just waiting for God's timing. When in reality, God has already said go, and you're either too afraid to step up or you're too lazy to do what it takes. Caleb didn't let himself get fat and lazy talking about the good old days in the, in the 40 years in the wilderness. Caleb was ready at 80 years old. <laughs> 85 years old. He's not as strong as I was when I was 40. It's terrifying in a couple ways, but he was ready to claim what God had promised him when the time came. Many men, many fathers are very driven. And some of us need to hear the patience thing more than the determination thing. But others of us, we're much too willing to give up, and let things ossify in our lives. Rather than doing something well, we just stop when it gets too hard and say, well, we'll, just, well, this is fine. This is enough. This is far enough. I don't need all that. This is not godly manhood. The Lord called us to live every minute of our life, coming across the finish line exhausted, having lived really lived this means taking the time to plan gentlemen and dream and pray and find out what does god want for my life and then being willing to work to be ready for it there have been a lot of things god has showed me i want you to do this i'm like well i'm not ready for that now and i know it's not time for that so in the meantime i'm going to get ready for it and then you have to have the gumption to step up and take it in faith caleb showed up and said nope i want the mountains are you ready to say that when the time comes 1 Corinthians 9, I've read this a lot. But do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul doesn't say, it doesn't matter who gets there first. We're all running, we're all having a good time, it's all fine. He says, no, 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 run to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, Paul says. (laughs) I love that, because he's saying, if I throw a punch, it's going to connect. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That applies to the Christian life, and it applies to your life in general. really shouldn't be a division between those two things, you understand? Dads should be disciplined so that they're always ready to get something better for their wives, for their children, for their grandchildren, whether that's a spiritual thing, whether it's a physical thing. We're determined in our lives. God put that in you. A lot of times we want to dampen that. Oh, you just want too much. You're too greedy. Not necessarily. It could be that God put you in the world and said, go live in it, and you're excited to go live in it. Stir that up and go after it. And the fifth characteristic of a father like Caleb is that he is selfless. He's not living his life for himself. He's living it for his clan, for his family. Caleb is thinking down the line, generations down the line. He's not just saying, I'm going to live my life, and then who cares what happens after that. He conquered the land, but he made provision for his daughter and his son-in-law. They were going to go live in the Negev, in the desert. And they said, hey, we're going to need water. So he made provision for them to have what they needed. A good father prepares blessings for his family and his children. And then he prepares the children for those blessings. To get them ready for what he's prepared for them. And he knows how to bring it all together. There's there's two temptations that dads face. Either to neglect the kids. Say, this is my life. I'm not going to let them ruin my life. I'm going to accomplish everything I could ever accomplish. Get out of my way, kids. And you leave them in the dust. That's not good. But nor is it good to deny everything that would ever make you happy, would ever make you feel fulfilled in life, and then sit there hating them kids for it. My life would have been better if it wasn't for you. Who knows what I could have achieved if it wasn't for those kids. There are temptations men face, but they're not godly. It's not either or. It's not either you have a great family or you have a great life. It's both and. You live a great life for your family. It's all together. And may I say just briefly as a, as a little rabbit trail, but I've said this before, A lot of times, we're taking our cues and our examples from people like rock stars and actors that live out in Hollywood, who have demonstrated their willingness to ignore and abandon their families to achieve what they want. And then they come out and say, this is what you want. No, I don't want to be like that. So stop looking to that example. The CEO, oh, he's got all this money, he's got all this stuff, but his family's a mess, and he commits suicide at age 50. Why do you want to be like those people? Let the Lord show you. Live for the family, for your kids, for your wife. It's going to be the most fulfilling part. Because work, if you live your life for your job, that's, that's, not, that's no way to live, is it? you got to find something that satisfies you. You've got something. You've got your wife and your kids. You can do anything at work if you show up and daddy's home and they run up and they hug your legs. Isn't that true? There was, I worked for a long time, not as long as many people, but for a long time. A job that I did not like one little bit. But as soon as I walked home and I saw my wife standing there and I saw my kids running around on the floor and making messes in my office, it was worth it. And the world wants to tell us, you've got to put your value in what you do. I, I'd rather put my value in the people that are right here in front of me. Then I can go out and do it for them, right? Selflessness. Not frittering away your time on yourself. Raising up children in the Lord who can handle the blessings that you're preparing for them. This is actually a longer passage, but it's so perfect. Ecclesiastes 5, 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Want to know what the grievous evil is? Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You ever feel like you're toiling for the wind? Don't make that the centerpiece of your life. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. What's Solomon saying? This is an evil thing. When men work so hard to maintain and have all these riches but they work so hard that they lose everything else. Now they've got nothing to pass on to their children, and they haven't cultivated that relationship with their children, so that not only did they lose their riches and their career and their whatever, now the family's broken too. And from there is when he goes on and talks about enjoying the life that God has given to you and not grasping after the wind, but living with the blessings that God has seen fit to give you. (laughs) When I was in the mood one time to look up my family tree, Apparently, back in the old country, England was our old country, there was, we actually did have a crest, and we had a motto and everything, and I thought, oh, that is so perfect. My old family's motto was, not for ourselves only are we born. Those were the words of my family. I'm like, oh, good, it was something good. (laughs) What they used to say to each other is, we're not born just for ourselves. Isn't that true? That is so true, that a godly father lives for his family and blesses them all. And through that process, you yourself become just as fulfilled and just as joyful as you would be if you achieved whatever platinum status in your career that you wanted to go after. A good father, to summarize these up, is godly, brave, patient, determined, and selfless. Just like Caleb. Caleb built a legacy for his children patiently. If Caleb was going to live his whole life for conquering those giants and sit there and brood about it for 40 years and then whine about it for five more years, he might have killed the giants, but he never would have been able to raise up Othniel and Aksa behind him who would have delivered Israel later and led it for 40 years. It's all together. That's the kind of man that we all ought to be. And ladies, children, you ought to be fostering and nurturing these qualities in your husband, your father, that when this is how he's acting, you're feeding that and you're encouraging that and you're not trying to push him away from those things. It happens. I know it sounds sick, but it does happen. Encouraging him as only you can. I encourage you, dads, honor your families by your lives. And families, honor your fathers. You know, not every situation is the same. If we were to line up every single one of you and have you tell your story, especially related to your dad, we've all got different stories, okay? Okay? But there are some things that are the same. And what is the same are these things here, these characteristics that Caleb exemplified for us. With God's help, we can live out his example. We can be honorable men that our children are going to remember fondly so that even when we're gone, like Othniel and Aksa, they're going to look back and say, we're going to do it like Dad did it. We're going to live up to his example. And as I said at the beginning, gentlemen, don't forget, We can stress, even about these things that we just ran through, about doing it right, doing it the best. I don't know if it's going to work. The most important thing you can do for your family is to be there, to love them, to be around them your way. Not like some book that you read, not something you saw on TV. You're their daddy. Love them. Be there for them. And we as a church should commit ourselves afresh to honoring the father in the family.